If your heart is still in your original home and you long for it and think you'd never see it again, don't give up hope. You see, even half a century can go by and you can. It happens, it happens, it keeps happening. You can recover your home, but you can also continue the new life that you have made in your new home. The Democracy in Practice series by Club de Madrid gathers the voices of democratic former presidents and prime ministers who leverage their individual and collective leadership experience to strengthen inclusive democratic practice today to better deliver towards the well-being of people around the world. Welcome to Club de Madrid's podcast series, Democracy in Practice. You are listening to the first episode of the series in 2022, which commemorates the recent World Refugee Day. I am Patrick Youssef, Regional Director for Africa at the International Committee of the Red Cross and an old friend of Club de Madrid. Today, I'll be discussing with President Vaira Vike Freiberga president of Latvia from 1999 to 2007, the first female head of a former Soviet bloc state, former president of Club de Madrid, and current member, professor, author, special envoy to the Secretary General of the United Nations on the UN's reform, and was an official candidate for UN Secretary General in 2006, among other things. And very importantly, she was a refugee herself and fled from war-torn Latvia to spend more than 50 years in exile to return afterwards and become president. Welcome, President Freiberga. The, top, the topic of this episode will be about current refugee crises, forcibly displayed persons around the world, migrants' rights, war-related humanitarian problem, exclusive narratives towards refugees, and possible solutions. Without further delay, let's get into the conversation. President Freiberga, according to the United Nations UNHCR, the number of forcibly displaced persons around the world surpassed 84 million people at the end of 2021. Slightly more than half of them are internally displaced within their own country, something which is often overlooked as there is a tendency to focus on cross-border displacement, such as refugee flows. Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Myanmar, Colombia, Ethiopia, and now Ukraine are among the countries with the biggest displacement crises in the world. In your opinion, why do you think such displacement continues to happen and even increases year by year? And what do you think could be done to prevent it? As far as internal displacement, I think there are a great many reasons for it, uh, depending on the part of the world where it occurs. The most often uh, that I can see as, as uh, the most frequent cause of internal displacement is uh, some sort of uh, natural catastrophe, such as a drought uh, or a flood, um, or an earthquake, and, and clearly um, when people lose 
their homes and workplaces because of a natural disaster, uh, they have no choice uh, but to move away. But usually uh, under such circumstances, much like war refugees, uh, they frequently leave with what they can carry in their hands. Uh, so they have, they have lost their uh, livelihood and their lives and, their, and the place that, they're, uh, that they call home. But uh, what I can talk about from my personal experience as, as a particularly painful experience is when your country is taken away from you by a foreign invading power. Because in that uh, situation, as you leave your home and leave everything behind and lose everything behind, you're also losing all your uh, friends and relatives. And uh, for me as a child, the friends I could make in five minutes, uh, wherever I went, uh, but uh, uh, other children to play with. Uh, however, I missed uh, painfully my, my grandmothers uh, and grandfathers, most of all, my aunts and uncles and, and, and cousins, and, the, and also the close friends that my parents had been in touch with. And that social, uh, milieu, that social context that gives you your identity, uh, that sort of defines who you are uh, by interaction, uh, and just missing to see, seeing, say, your grandmother. I was very fond of my Riga grandmother, uh, and uh, for years and years I mourned uh, the fact that I, I would never see again. Um, the uh, the other thing is the loss of identity. Uh, uh, Ukraine is being invaded by, by a Russia and the president that says, you do not exist. You're not really real. You do not count. Uh, uh, we have our interests and we have our version of history and of, of what is happening today, which uh, has little contact with reality. And, um, and, that's, and that makes people disappear. The greatest, I think, offense you can do to any human being is to act as if they did not exist. There they are. They live and they breathe uh, and they have an identity. And when some foreign power or, in fact, some country that receives you, when they say, you bloody foreigners, uh, what are you doing here? Uh, and, and they don't care where you come from and, and what your name is or they can't pronounce your name. Uh, they never heard of your country. Um, it's a hideously uh, sort of depersonalizing of the individual who is involved. Uh, whereas in internal uh, displacement, it's like your house burns down, say, struck by lightning. Uh, it's, it's sad. Uh, it may even be tragic, but it's, it's not quite the same thing as, as losing your country to a foreign power. Thank you very much. And you're right. You said two things I think quite quite important. One is the about the reasons of displacement, and it's true that countries affected by natural disasters, but also by wars and violence, are the most affected by displacement. And I can see it from my own experience in Africa, which is the continent that hosts the biggest number of internally displaced and refugees across the world. We can see that the human cost that you mentioned also in the loss of identity, in the loss of lives and livelihoods, in family communications disrupted, and so much that people at the end of the day uh, bear themselves as a result of the events that are not in their own decision-making. And here, 
uh, you're right also to mention that more efforts should be paid to prevent displacement in a way, because civilians should be at the center of all policies and practices that indeed make uh, the displaced uh, populations either accepted, tolerated, or indeed rejected by certain authorities, even within the borders of their own countries. And here, I think people's right to freedom of movement and seeking safety should be respected. And I feel, again, those opening their doors and hosting people within their countries or abroad indeed merit the recognition uh, those to help and support those who were uprooted. Many countries around the world are showing great solidarity with displaced people from Ukraine today, sending donations to help uh, the displaced people, but are also opening their doors to refugees. Despite this, we still see many people in Europe and elsewhere around the world that are seeker, seeking international protection but are victims of collective expulsions and excessive use of force at borders. They may be injured, they can go missing, or be returned to countries where their fundamental rights may be at risk. Regardless of the reasons why people may have engaged in such a journey, what do you think could be done more for states to protect migrants' rights? Well, frankly, I think that when I said there are two main uh, causes for uh, displaced uh, persons um, coming into our midst or coming into existence, I really should have added the third one, which is a crucial one in a great many parts of the world, and that is bad governance or failed states into which they are living. Uh, if uh, a government is a totalitarian or authoritarian and repressive one, uh, where the rule of law does not reign, where a citizen cannot count uh, on their rights and, uh, and, and privacy uh, being uh, respected, but where they are submitted to armed bands uh, that roam about uh, and, and commit atrocities uh, freely at will, uh, where too many countries where, for instance, drug routes or, or human trafficking routes or illegal arms routes uh, go through these countries and you have extraordinarily rich uh, and well-armed uh, groups that terrorize uh, the citizens, the ordinary citizens of a country, either asking their, them to serve these, uh, these interests uh, uh, or uh, just sort of willfully uh, playing with human lives. Uh, but you see, there's also the, uh, these uh, illegal rings, extremely profitable rings worldwide, are, have also had the effect, and there are other causes, mind you, uh, natural resources that get sold very cheaply and, and the heads of state get um, get actually uh, uh, the corruption occurs. A state can be corrupted by contact with these illegal forces, as well as uh, power using power, if you like, uh, by by imposition, but by collaboration. There's collaboration between many uh, totally inept and inappropriate leaders in their countries. Uh, the countries are so penetrated by by organized crime. 
that the ordinary citizen no longer can count on a normal life. And in many countries, that is precisely the reason that they are fleeing from that. And if then, having fled from a bad situation, uh, they, they meet a wall uh, or a river or a sea, and they cannot get across, and, and there's nobody to receive them at the other end, then they, then they are in a, in a no man's land, literally. Uh, and and it, it's, it's absolute despair when it is not in too many cases, when it's not a case of their death. When my parents fled Latvia, they did so on one of the, I think, the next to the last uh, German troop ship. The Germans, the Nazi Germans had occupied Latvia and, and the Soviet communists were re, reoccupying Latvia, which they had already taken in 1940. Um, and the ship we left on was a military ship, uh, ship. And in the month of January in the Baltic Sea, uh, we were uh, allowed uh, to stand on deck between, between uh, the tanks and whatever that had been stored there. Uh, and periodically the lights would go out and the, uh, the engines of the ship turned off. And we would wait in the dark whether a Russian torpedo would hit that German ship or not. And many, my, my grandmother used to run to the seashore uh, when bodies were washed ashore from previous ships that had tried to leave Latvia with refugees also on board. And they would be sunk so that uh, this sort of, I can understand and fully sympathize with the people who, who come across in boats and, and they know how, how easy it is for the boats to capsize. Uh, and to sink, uh, because we, uh, uh, I've been through that uh, as a child, and I can still remember the horror of sitting there in the dark with the ship's engines turned off um, and wondering whether a torpedo is on the way and we're going to be blown up or whether we will continue our voyage. Thank you very much. And indeed, uh, you're putting the emphasis on states and uh, state responsibility in front of indeed the rights of those who are completely sidelined. And you're right to also mention that states in a way must respect certain norms, some, some form of international law, including the life-saving principle of no refoulement, which uh, prohibits the transfer of persons from an authority to another uh, without having substantial grounds to believe that these persons will be you know, in safety or uh, in other terms, away from danger and being subjected to violations of certain fundamental rights. Uh, and I, it feels today more and more that the restrictive migration policies aiming at containment and securization of borders may have an enormous impact on people's lives. We saw it a couple of days ago between the borders of two continents. And indeed, regardless of the reasons why they have, why these people have left their countries, these migrants may be compounded to take irregular, irregular migratory routes. And the ones that you just mentioned, uh, those who are in power, those who can allow themselves to use force against migrants is an unfortunate result of these restrictive measures and the need for these migrants still to find their way. Unfortunately, a trend that is not new. And we know that this has been historically present in all the psyche of those who lived this atrocity. Uh, Madame Freberga, at the end of the Second World War, more than 40 million people have been displaced from their homes. 
and you were among them. As a young child, you have been displaced through several countries and continents, and you've just gave, I gave us some highlights of what you lived as a child. What can you tell us about your personal experience? What have been the main humanitarian problem affecting you and your family as you recollect your thoughts? And do you see these issues still occurring and happening today? Uh, I do indeed. Um, the first thing that, that should be mentioned is that once refugees arrive somewhere um, uh, in a country that is more or less um, simply, if you like, stuck with them, they, they are there and, and they have to be put up. And then they're put up in, in frequently in very unsanitary and, and primitive uh, conditions. Um, we were put in a, it was, to, the, the end of the war was approaching because my parents had been waiting for the end of the war when they were sure that the international community would recognize Latvia, uh, which had been a member of the League of Nations and, and would accept that Latvia is, uh, should be uh, freed of foreign uh, troops uh, and granted its independence again. They did not know that we had been sold out by international agreements uh, at Yalta uh, and at Tehran uh, between the allies, between Stalin of Soviet Union, Churchill of Great Britain and, and, and President Roosevelt of the United States, who simply sold out the Baltic countries uh, and Poland for that matter, but the Baltic countries were allowed to be incorporated, illegally incorporated into the Soviet Union. Uh, and they said, well, well, you know, we have recovered our, our freedom. Uh, Nazism has been de uh, defeated. And what happens uh, east of the Elbe River, River is, is completely of no interest to us. We can happily go on living. Uh, so that uh, the, the transit camps that my parents and uh, much as many people in Ukraine are leaving too late, uh, they're uh, fleeing from their home and they frequently and cannot and then they get shot on the way and this this I have seen happen too. We were put in an absolutely dreadful camp where my little sister died within uh, uh, after a trip on an unheated train uh, and uh, th then we were told to, to be de-loused and, and, and sent told to undress by the Germans completely naked and go under uh, an ice cold shower uh, in the month of January, my little sister died uh, within a week of uh, of severe pneumonia, and there was no medicine. There wasn't anything. I became uh, ill, uh, and everybody else became ill. Children under seven mostly died in that camp. Um, those who survived or had arrived in earlier times in Germany, ultimately after the armistice, um, the Western the Western occupying forces, Britain. Uh, U.S. and France in Germany uh, took care of the refugees uh, under the umbrella uh, of uh, first the what we call the UNRWA, the United Nations Refugee Rehabilitation uh, Organization Association. Uh, it was replaced by the IRO, but we were placed wherever, wherever they could find a space. And after about four or five years, the United Nations decided that uh, these refugees had to be taken out of Europe. Europe, post-war Europe, uh, in, in the year 1949, when I left it, uh, was not ready to accept more than a very small number of refugees. 
And we were told the camps are going to be closing and you have to go somewhere. And the United Nations asked, sort of it was a bidding, uh, who is uh, willing to take families with uh, small children? Canada said no. At, in 1949, Canada, which later became my home, <laughs> at that time said no. They wanted single men and single women who could go and do the kind of labor that they had a shortage of. And it's only some years later that they took refugees with families. So I wound up in North Africa. The French, as it so happens, in their protectorate at that time of Morocco, uh, were willing to take also uh, families uh, with small children. Uh, but uh, uh, there were not any any great number of them. It was a very limited number. And then, of course, when Morocco uh, was um, uh, in many ways uh, sort of waving goodbye to its to its European contingent, together with the French, the the French uh, forces uh, that were it was a protectorate of France, we had to leave, and that's when Canada did take us on. What I'm saying thereby is that. Uh, uh, Europe, which is being reproached for not taking, for instance, say, um, endless millions from uh, uh, from Africa, uh, should uh, people should not be surprised at this because Europe is very conscious of its uh, capability of uh, absorption of of a foreign body uh, of people. There were millions of well qualified, educated people coming from another part, from the eastern part of Europe. But post-war, uh, Britain only wanted single men to work in uh, in the mines. So did Belgium, uh, or single women to work as as um, uh, assistants, uh, nurses, assistants in hospitals. And, and hardly anybody was interested in having small families. Sweden had refugees who would come overseas by boats, by fishing boats illegally, and they did accept them. But they they also did a rendition of some uh, Latins who had been illegally conscripted by uh, by the Germans and sent them back to the Soviets to a very certain uh, either uh, death or, or to being sent to Siberia. Europe uh, has shown uh, that it took its own interests at heart. And I think that any country anywhere else in the world will tell you that there's a limit to a capacity of absorption. And what I find extraordinary and like to express it here, the uh, openness of Poland to an unlimited number of refugees and the, the speed with which both government bodies, but mostly uh, volunteer organizations organized uh, to help refugees, to sort them out, to send the Indians back to India, uh, to send the African students back to Africa, which is not that easy to do after all. Uh, and then to sort out uh, the families with small children and then those with, with the bigger children, single people and all that thing. I think Poland, Moldova, uh, all the neighboring countries, including Latvia, my own, uh, have, have been really uh, extremely uh, forthcoming because we, uh, I think, because we have gone through the horrors of war and all sorts of things, and we understand what it means. And these are people we know that what is happening to them could, uh, you know, theoretically, uh, <laughs> you know, there for the grace of God, go we and go I. Uh, one, of course, then feels uh, a certain sympathy. But let's face it, there is. Um, 
there's a logistics question. There's a question of, of capacity of reception. And countries that have taken, for various reasons, large numbers of refugees, but have them for years and sometimes decades living in tents and unsanitary conditions, uh, that is not really the answer. Uh, there should be, as there was after the Second World War, at some point, uh, if you like, a bidding and say, look, we have we have so many families here and and, and people of that sort of age. Uh, please, which country and the United Nations surely has a role here to say as it, they did uh, in in forty nine fifty. Who is ready to take on families? Venezuela said yes, we're ready to take them. Brazil said yes, we're ready to take them. But people were reluctant from from the northern climate uh, to go. Uh, to places like Venezuela and and Brazil, although later on I, I met them all when I traveled around to exile communities of of Latvians, uh, I found that uh, even from a northern climate, people become quite happily <laughs> adapted to a warm one. I'm not sure what happens when people go from a warm climate to a very cold one. It's but they do adjust. If they if they're well received, they will adjust. You're expressing the, the need for adaptation and imagine a, a three-year-old or a six-year-old child having to adapt to these circumstances. It's just a horrible kind of narrative to, to know that uh, after, all, after all, these statistics are only uh, stories of human beings and human beings that indeed are not only uprooted, but sometimes face stigmatization, discrimination, they're considered as bundles of people rather than individuals. As you say, there, there were bids to take groups of families uh, elsewhere from their own homeland. And indeed the internally displaced asylum seekers, but also refugees in camps may be subjected to different type of atrocities. You mentioned earlier, the question of governance, the rule of law and the need for to respect certain norms. And indeed, we, we do see in our own experience at ICRC how difficult it is for people uprooted sometimes to face restrictions of movement that can indeed amount to some form of deprivation of liberty. Uh, you've also mentioned the question of family separation. You know, displacement is often a cause of family separation and people going missing. And that's where uh, the International Community of the Red Cross, but also the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement works together to preserve and restore family links as much as we can, find and identify people reported missing, and try as much as possible to bring closure for those cases of disappeared family members. And therefore, I myself, I, I lived in a war-torn country and indeed lived the atrocities of simply not finding your own sibling and waking up to a huge world of uncertainty that people away from war zones just don't understand. That doesn't mean everyone has to live the atrocities to feel part of the narrative, but it also means that there's a need for education and more empathy in this world to bring closure to some form of atrocities that people live. In Europe, we often hear narratives of unmanageable numbers of migrants arriving from Africa or Asia, and you've alluded to that, President Verberica and threatening security and access to resources and livelihoods. In fact, the big majority of forcibly displaced persons and migrants in general from those continents remain in their region. And according to UNHCR, developing countries host 
85% of the refugee population worldwide. As statistics by the International Displacement Monitoring Center and the Africa Center for Strategic Studies show in 2021, that almost half of the 52 million people internally displaced worldwide by conflict and violent violence uh, are located in Africa, most notably in the DRC, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Somalia, Sudan, or even South Sudan. What do you think the international community should do more or differently to promote a political discourse that fosters social inclusion and prevent xenophobia and exclusive narratives towards refugees? The rejecting attitude towards towards foreigners uh, comes from, I think, a sense of insecurity uh, on the part of the people that you encounter, or it is uh, frequently the result uh, of, of local propaganda uh, of the kind that, for instance, is now happening in Russia, where all the public media are completely under government control, uh, which uh, simply vehiculate uh, a narrative about what is happening in the world and what is happening between Russia and Ukraine that has absolutely no contact with the reality. Uh, and in, in such uh, circumstances, if you are told that every Ukrainian who actually had anything to do with the running of their country or who was legally elected or who was a teacher or, or anything, whatever, if he doesn't greet you with, with a bunch of flowers and say, welcome, you know, uh, you finally liberated me, then uh, you, you, he's, he's no longer human and uh, she's no longer human. You can rape them, you can kill them, you can torture them, you can do your point. Um, from my own childhood, I had, I could tell you stories of uh, learning to run very fast in in coming uh, going from one place to another from where 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 we had a room to a roof over our heads but the place in a camp uh, where the Latvians themselves organized schooling for the refugee children because international bodies in my memory were not extremely diligent in establishing schooling and ensuring that uh, children uh, and adolescents did not lose uh, lose out uh, on their fundamental education. I did have, for instance, German boys waiting, teenagers who had been indoctrinated in the Hitler Jugend, uh, waiting uh, on a corner, calling me names, and, and actually with sticks and stones and threatening to, to attack me. And I was a little slip uh, of a girl, seven, eight years old, um, and I learned to run very fast, but at the same time, where uh, the place where we're living next doors, uh, there were children, um, doctors, uh, son and daughter, who took me into their home and, and showed me their uh, their puppet theater and and and, and helped me to learn German uh, and other other German children that I played with. So that I think this reflects the reality that happens with adults as well. In other words, in every country, there are people who are open-hearted. Uh, who are very civilized, uh, who are kind, kind-hearted. They will reach out the helping hand uh, and an understanding hand. And, and for instance, by it is these people who helped me to learn uh, the local language, German, very, very quickly in a matter of weeks so that I had enough to communicate with. And communication is extremely important. If you keep refugees completely locked up, as theoretically we were, we were behind uh, behind a sort of 
barbed wire and with a British guard at the gates, at least for the first years after the war. Uh, but getting into contact with the locals and having a human contact and learning their language is, is exceedingly helpful. But I, I, if I may, uh, since uh, I'm part of this uh, UNESCO group on the futures of education, who, who are just uh, um, have, are depositing, uh, uh, have deposited the report uh, at UNESCO, which will be used uh, at the next uh, UN General Assembly by uh, uh, Secretary General Guterres as part of his uh, um, Sustainable Development Goals uh, program. Uh, I should really emphasize that no matter no, no matter how uncertain the future, say, of a refugee camp is that has been established somewhere, and no matter how temporary, uh, I would really, really advocate and urge. Um, uh, in the in the case of the Latvians, it was the local people themselves uh, organized, even those who were not teachers by profession, to organize classes for the children so that they could start their schooling. Uh, because the, what is lost uh, in childhood, the, lo the longer it lasts, the more difficult it is to catch up later. Whereas if you do something, even something rudimentary, I can assure you from my own personal experience uh, that a child, uh, children have uh, an urge to learn if you're giving them half a chance. And they can, they can fit in and they can uh, be competitive uh, and, and they can become the best student in the school, as a matter of fact, in many cases. But one must not uh, waste time uh, in giving them at least elementary possibilities of education, no matter how temporary the position they're in. Indeed, humanizing the whole the whole narrative is probably the best way to include and you mentioned something around the sense of agency you provide people with the means to communicate with the language to be part of the society and here i think there's a need for the international community to rebalance the political narrative and provide more solidarity and support uh, to the most affected uh, host countries and indeed it's therefore paramount for the international community also to increase and adapt its support to the most fragile countries and displaced communities, including by, you know, strengthening uh, climate action or climate financing, as we see it today, as one of the main reasons that uh, the African continent is living a food insecurity of that magnitude, uh, installed by, indeed, the different failures of systems where the international community can definitely have a very positive output towards the population directly. Um, we've mentioned conflicts and violence around the world as a mean to continue forcing people to flee, unfortunately. At the same time, most displaced persons remain in a protracted, precarious situation for years, and sometimes even decades. Um, they may be displaced several times eternally or eventually cross a border. Some are compelled to stay in closed camps or are simply deprived of access to services, to health, education, legal documentation, most of which you've mentioned, President Ferberka. They cannot find a solution to their predicaments and have no perspective on where and how they will be able to fully reestablish their lives and finally look ahead. What do you think are the main challenges for displaced persons to find a durable solution? And what could the international community do to create a conducive environment for people to, to re-establish their lives? 
the the experience of of the Latvian refugees of the Second World War uh, uh, showed uh, a picture that I ho I hope that uh, in in the future uh, will not be uh, so dramatic, because what happens when a person leaves uh, a country that is occupied by another? In our case, uh, the higher the status, the social status they had or the higher the level of education they had, the, the greater the fall from social status to a lower level is going to be. I remember when we first arrived uh, in Canada after uh, the independence movement had well was well on its way in Morocco and Europeans were um, uh, encouraged uh, uh, to to look for for either to return to France for the French, but 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 the foreigners that France had taken in uh, were not particularly uh, welcome in France. So we looked elsewhere and we went, went to Canada. And uh, the uh, when we looked for a place to live, uh, we found that for for the years that we had spent in Morocco, uh, in Canada, by working and doing manual labor. Uh, which was uh, quite uh, remarkably well paid, actually. Uh, people who had had uh, higher education had managed to save up by being very frugal, um, uh, had bought some small houses, as Toronto had them, these little two and a half or three-story little houses, and we were renting a flat there. Now, our um, landlord uh, had been a judge in Latvia, uh, he was also a writer. Uh, what he was doing is uh, that he was loading and unloading uh, goods that arrived by by train uh, uh, on uh, on wagons that would bring them to a department store called Simpsons, uh, which existed at the time. And he spent his life uh, unloading heavy heavy loads of goods, uh, loading and unloading. Um, and then uh, in his evenings and, and on the weekends, he continued to write novels because he had also been a novelist in Latvia. And he could only do that because there was uh, a concentration of refugees from the same origin who started wishing to have books in their own language. And so that he had a, a limited, uh, if you like, public of potential access. But his knowledge as a judge he was he was past middle age. He could not go back to college. He didn't have the means to go back to college. So that in among refugees, what it amounts to is you have large numbers of talent and of experience that is difficultly transferable to a different place. Uh, the 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 bigger the the investment they had made in their original country, uh, the we, oh yeah we had uh, other. Uh, Latvian artists, musicians, painters in New York uh, became janitors in apartment buildings. And one of the writers has written a book, uh, famous in Latvian, which is called Janitor, because that was a job that you could find. But you see, they managed to create a microcosm of a refugee uh, sort of society uh, that where they still had this recovered the status of saying, oh, well, that is a writer or painter, so and so, even though he's working as, as a janitor. Uh, but uh, when you don't have that opportunity, it, it's uh, and, and the refugees are they're all mixed up from different sources. 
I think it's much more difficult. Um, but the, I, I repeat again and again, even for adults, adult education that you could offer to refugees would solve so many problems by making them able to insert themselves into the local society uh, and the local society benefiting. I mean, the ballet in Canada was started by a Latvian lady from the ballet uh, opera house in, in Latvia uh, and, and the Russian lady uh, also, uh, I think a refugee from the East. Uh, Canada did not have ballet schools, they didn't have a ballet and, and so on. Uh, the Symphony Orchestra of, of the province of New Brunswick in Canada was founded and a conservative founded by a Latvian professor and composer uh, uh, who spent the, the rest of his life uh, in New Brunswick, etc, etc. The more the local society is to the incoming refugees, the more it has to gain from what they can contribute as individuals and as talents. Thank you very much. It's an excellent uh, segue before we close this. And uh, indeed, I feel that we're when you when you when you speak about your own personal story and indeed about the solutions that host that the host community has had provided to, in your case, your own family, but your own surrounding, is something that pushes the humanitarian community also to continue its advocacy and push even further to help support the displaced people to find durable solutions for their predicaments according to their needs and aspirations. And you mentioned that in your the host country that hosted you, Canada in this case, there were so many opportunities that were offered simply by the, uh, by the open uh, attitude and the willingness to support and indeed to see a return in a way uh, on this human investment that keeps a sustainable uh, reasoning behind their local integration, resettlements and other you know, pathways of legal admission to third countries such as family reunifications needed to keep the family units all together, humanitarian corridors and sponsorships. And in the case that you just uh, des described, a situation of protracted displacement, I believe interim solutions should be promoted to better protect those refugees and strengthen their safety, security, but also their self-reliance in order for them to be securely and safely admitted in an environment that helps them go back one day or at least hope to come back to a normal situation one day. President Vaira, BK Freberga, I was privileged to have this conversation with you, learn about your story and your insights, and hopefully learn also and how a human-centric approach can make a big difference. In your case, we're very honored to have had this conversation and learn again from your story. Thank you and goodbye. And particularly, if your heart is still in your original home and you long for it and think you'd never see it again, don't give up hope. You see, even half a century can go by and you can. It happens, it happens, it keeps happening. You can recover your home, but you can also continue the new life that you have made in your new home. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>